Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on the radio where we talk about all things science and science related. Uh, my name's Stu and on this week's show I'm going to be talking about a potential new process for carbon sequestration and you've probably heard people talk about carbon sequestration as the idea that you can suck all of the carbon out of the atmosphere and somehow store it. No one's got a working model for that as far as yeah, I'm aware. Yeah, I mean, aware. It's, it's sort of been a bit of a silver bullet uh, and a bit of a pie in the sky, right, for a lot of people. It's a, it's a silver pie in the sky bullet. <laughs> um, yeah. The silver lining bullet yeah. pie in the sky. It, it, you know, it sounds like a great idea and it would certainly solve a lot of problems, but nobody's been able mm. to really do anything practical with it. Uh, but there is uh, some new research that suggests we might be able to make a kind of rock that can store carbon, but, you know, it's all about time and scale and things like that. So it remains to be seen how that's going to turn out. Um, Claire, what have you got for us on the show? Well, this week we have Vicky Hallett in the studio, who is a musician, composer and fan of elephants and uh, natural sounds in general. So she's going to come in and tell us all about her process, her sort of musical compositional process, where she takes the sounds and records the sounds of nature. So like uh, the sounds of like that elephants make, the subaudible elephant sounds and then turns them into a composition and then plays them and educates people about um, conservation. Um, so it's really interesting what she does. Um, she plays the clarinet, but then she also like does a whole lot of looping um, with different different sounds and different, um, different themes. So yeah, she's going to come and talk a bit about her process and something called acoustic ecology. Wow, that sounds yeah. really interesting. Yes. Uh, that's coming up later in the show. Stay tuned. So you've probably heard in the past or, you know, in, in general um, about the idea of carbon sequestration. Right. So taking uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide um, and putting it, sequestering it somehow into the ground. Well, yeah, but well, anyhow, really, I mean, any kind of removal of carbon from the atmosphere and locking it up so it's not Somewhere in the else. atmosphere. Yeah is a way of sequestering it. So it's not actually uh, having an effect on the climate because it's not changing the atmospheric uh, makeup, basically. Um, so the idea of this is, you know, liquefying carbon dioxide. So first of all, you've got to capture the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or from some sort of source of carbon dioxide, like a coal burning power plant or something like that and then you somehow turn it into some sort of uh, material presumably a liquid or I guess a concentrated gas and then you pump it underground to where it can be stored out of the way. Or you could take atmospheric carbon dioxide um, turn it into a sugar and keep it as a tree. <laughs> <laughs> well you could that uh, from what I've from what my understanding is that the rate that trees the original absorb. carbon sequestration yeah the the, the rate that, that trees can store carbon is not fast enough to do us any good apparently um, 
It's just that we're burning millions and millions of years worth of carbon that was sequestered quite safely under the ground in the form of fossil fuels. And now we're letting all that carbon out to um, drive to work. Basically. So this is the idea that we can fast track that sort of fossil fuel process, fossil, well, fossilizing process. Potentially. So it's kind of, you know, the, the idea, the, the chemical, the chemistry behind it and the physics behind it, it's all theoretically possible, but nobody has actually got a system that's effective at doing it in the short term. So um, that, that's, that's part of the problem is that the scale of carbon sequestration required is well beyond our capacity currently to do that. Um, but there are a number of chemical elements that are capable of binding with carbon dioxide and creating various kinds of minerals. So this happens all the time. It's just really, really super slow. It's, you know, it, it's a geological process. Um, and we know that scales of geological time are well beyond what humans can really comprehend. Um, so they often require... Um, thousands of years and require high pressure and heat and conditions that require energy inputs, which is kind of part of the problem is that right. we're, yeah. <laughs> we're producing all this carbon dioxide by making energy with the systems we've got. So, you know, That's the reason we're producing it in the first place. Yeah, kind to of. To make the energy to sequester the carbon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and the, and the uh, you know, if, if someone comes along with some clean, free energy system, very quickly we could forget about the whole thing and we'll just move on to that. But at the moment, we've got to figure out a way to deal with what's already there, let alone what we're continually adding. So high energy input systems are not really viable. Um, so there is uh, a particular mineral, a kind of rock um, called magnesite. So magnesite is a, uh, a mineral which is basically magnesium carbonate. So it's <clears throat> The element magnesium binds with carbon dioxide and makes carbonate. Um, and this is naturally occurring. And um, a metric ton of magnesite contains up to half a ton of carbon dioxide. So it's a great way of, uh, you know, sequestering carbon. But um, obviously it's a rock, so it's a geological process to make this stuff and it takes thousands and thousands of years. Well, that is at least until... Uh, Canadian researchers led by Ian Power, great name, great name, um, have announced they can make it at sea level pressures and at atmospheric temperatures in a matter of months. Where's the catch, Stu? Well, as far as it goes... Have um, they only done it on very small samples at the moment? They have only done it on very small yeah. samples. But what they've done is actually pretty interesting. Um, in nature, the process is slowed down by water, so water molecules sort of bind around the magnesium ions and stop them from binding with the carbon. So what they've done is uh, found a way of attracting the water molecules away from the magnesium. Distracting the water. Distracting the water. <laughs> the water gets confused and runs after. Um, using uh, micro spheres of polystyrene. Wow. So they're actually using the polystyrene to attract the water away from the magnesium and that speeds up the rate at which the magnesium binds with carbon dioxide and turns into this magnesite in just a matter of months instead of thousands and thousands of years. So is this potentially um, a way to, um, you know, help with the amount of carbon dioxide in the environment and also deal with the amount of polystyrene in the environment? 
Well, yeah, it could be because apparently, well, there's a lot of polystyrene around and it is unrecyclable. You can't yeah. turn it into anything else. Unless you pour acetone on it. Yeah, and then it turns into toxic yeah, bad. gases and things. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, but, yes, they can also reuse the polystyrene in this process. So they can just keep reusing it and reusing it and reusing it. So it, it. isn't consumed It doesn't in get the consumed in the process wow. at all. Um, so, yeah, it is potentially a use for polystyrene unless they have to manufacture polystyrene specially for this, which is, you know, uh, p- probably a downside to the whole experiment. But, yeah, as you said before, they have only made a few micrograms of <laughs> magnesite so far. Well, you got to start somewhere, don't well, you? Well, and, you know, that's the thing. They've got proof of concept. They know that it works. They know they can do it. And now all they have to do is scale it up. All they have to do, is All they have to do. All they have to do is scale <laughs> it up to deal with the millions of tonnes per year of carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere. But, hey, at least that's a little ray of hope for carbon sequestration. And you know what? At the end of the day, they can just leave it in the ground as well. That works well too. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They could just not dig it up in the first place. guest today is a musician and an artist with an interest in ecology and scientific research who creates soundscapes using elephant recordings and has played concert clarinet alongside hippopotamus on the border of South Africa and Botswana. Vicky Hallett, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me, Claire. It's great to be here. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what acoustic ecology is and this idea of marrying I guess acoustics with natural sounds. So acoustic ecology is really the sounds of the world and about capturing maybe a sonic postcard of that place and time. Then you're able to use that in any particular way I mean, you're a musician, a sound recordist, um, and you integrate science into your practice. How did you get into um, how did you get into this in the first place? I have a strong performing background, but I always had an interest in the science, particularly uh, for me as I was growing up. I would do a lot of walking in the bush, uh, playing with frogs and tadpoles and things like that. And I chose the path of doing performance on clarinet 
and went out there as a performer for a number of years. But I sat back after a while and considered what did I really want to do and I still had that passion. I would be on tour and I'd be out diving and I'd be doing courses that I loved about nature. So I and I had the interest in acoustic ecology from uni. I had learned about the world world forum of acoustic ecology. So it isn't a new concept by any means. No, it's been around since the 70s and I started reading more about it again and discovered that I really had that interest in it and then to work out how myself as a performer could use that was the struggle and it probably took me two years to work through that struggle. Um, so maybe what, maybe the best way to give the audience um, an understanding of your creative process and also how you sort of um, intersect with science Let's talk about your the Elephant Listening Project and the work that came out of that. So talk us through that, that project and, and um, your involvement in it. The Elephant Listening Project was the initial one that I started with. I had been looking into birdsong and straight nature recordings and working out ways of using them to create performances. And I came across the Elephant Listening Project off Cornell's university's ornithology program and what is it was founded by Katie Payne and she discovered that the elephant calls include sounds that are below the levels of human hearing so they're in the infrasound level and the ELP captures these acoustic recordings to study and help conserve the African forest elephant. So the EOP is the Elephant Listening Project. Right, so it works specifically with the not any sort of elephant but the ones that are quite hard to find because they live in the jungle most of the time. Yes, and so they're hard to see and to count the numbers and to work out the stability of the populations is really difficult and a lot of their activity is at night as well. Oh, so even even harder for biologists to track them down. So she's listening to them, what, through sort of um, sub-audible levels on, in the ground? So they drop recorders in the forest. Uh, Katie Payne was in a zoo when she first realised it because you can feel it, the rumbling. Uh, but now they, they drop the recorders and they take three-month recordings. Uh, recordings. And they then take them back to Cornell and... They analyse the recordings and through spectrograms and they're able to see the infrasound and you're also able to sample it up so we can then hear it. Right. So when you say sample up, what are they actually doing to the sound there? So they're raising it by approximately two octaves. Ah. And so is that the sound that you're then using? I use all types of recordings that just capture my interest. I do use a lot of the other sounds. I use the flies, I use the frogs, the cicadas, and I create modes out of that to create the score. So the infrasound I usually try to capture as Katie discovered it and that you would sense as a feeling in the room. So with with reasonable speakers, you get that effect and the sensation. If you're performing the composition from the Elephant Listening Project live, um, how how does your performance um, intersect with the natural sounds that are that are also playing? 
So how I resolved the issue of playing on clarinets, uh, a Western instrument, and playing with an elephant that's pre been recorded in the African jungle, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it was a bit of a dilemma for a while. Um, and I think once I got past my issue with it, my quandary of how I can represent this it's it's actually been really quite strong because once I resolved it with myself, I can then represent it. And I use, as I said, the frogs, the birds, the cicadas and the rumbles and I pick out, I actually transcribe the notes and work out a mode and I'm not really focused on a traditional mode as you would have it, the aeolian or C major or things like that. I actually just put the notes that, that I've taken from the soundscape and create a scale from it. And then if it happens to be a traditional mode, then so be it. But I'm not focused on that. And then I use bass clarinets, Dagum, uh, B-flat clarinets and a couple of other instruments. And I create loops based on either the rhythms of some of the elephant sounds some of the bird calls and on top of that then I play usually the B-flat clarinet as a improvised melody over the top. Um, well, I feel like we've talked a lot about this but maybe the best way to demonstrate it is to play a little bit of your composition with Elephant Listening Project, Elephant Sounds. So let's have a listen. listening to Lost in Science and I'm here with Vicky Hallett, musician and artist and elephant lover. I don't know, can I say that, Vicky? Yes, by all means. <laughs> and you were listening to her composition called Elephant Song. Vicky, with the Elephant Listening Project that we just heard, in your opinion, um, how is your composition and your live performance, how does it contribute and complement the ecology and scientific research that's also taking place? Well, one of the main things that I do with my performances is I like to take them out into the general public events. So it, it can be an all ages performance. I have done one with young children, preschoolers. Wow. Uh, so it was a cushion concert. And we had the video, had myself performing live and they were dancing and could feel it. And at the end of it, they take home a fact sheet about the elephant. But they also get to see an artist performing live. They get to see a composer performing live. They get to speak to me afterwards. I love to talk about what we do and how we do it. 
and they get the information to go home and learn about conservation and maybe it might pique some ideas about adopting an elephant and about the way that they are so important, these particular elephants, in the area that they live and there's probably only eight years left of them before they're extinct and how important they are as a seed disperser. I mean, music is such a emotional thing. Um, it's it's incredible to to be able to link um, the emotion that people are feeling with something as important as conservation for a species that's you know on a completely different continent to us. Um, and I mean, you know, elephants are known for a lot of things, but the, the subaudible sounds is not you know a commonly known one. And the fact that they communicate in that way and they are, are able to send signals of whether to whether there's danger or whether this is a great waterhole with some sip wells that they can use. So there's there's a wealth of information we just that the researchers just don't know. And all I can do is learn as much. And then when I have those conversations with people, I it gives me an opportunity to give out the information. Now, I also mentioned that a more recent project saw you in Africa recording and performing on the border of South Africa and Botswana with a whole lot of hippopotamus. Incredible. What was that experience like? That was really quite incredible and something that I didn't expect to have. So it was a workshop residency ran for 11 sound artists from around the world and I was lucky enough to be chosen to go. And I took my clarinets, just on the off chance I might get to play somewhere. I asked if there was some place that was suitable for myself to go out and just play in the field. And it was suggested that I go out onto Mambala Rock. This particular rock is quite famous. There's a story that there's actually a few stories because the more I asked, it tended to vary a little bit. The version I resolved to was the chieftain's daughter went down to the rock and was washing her clothes and then she didn't come back and her daughter went down out onto the rock and was walking around going, ma bolel, ma bolel which is mother, speak to me. And she's looking for her mother and she'd been taken by the crocodile off the rock. So this rock is also known from Rudyard's Kipling's Elephant Child. And it was the rock where the crocodile pulled the elephant's nose and created the trunk. Oh, a very famous rock. That was what really piqued my interest with this residency because I wanted to go onto the same continent with elephants. So I really wanted to get my own recording so I would then get a background of information that I could convey in my compositions and performances and I could relate that a lot easier to the, the people that I speak to. So we went out that evening. So it was a dusk chorus that we chose and I was to play on the rock that was known for taking people. (laughs) I hope you look for crocodiles before you went out there, Vicky. Well, we did, but it was at my own risk. I should go back a little bit. When we turned up, we never really knew what we were going to get at 
each site that we turned up to. So we set up recorders for that evening, but I, I chose not to return to set up the recorders because I we saw a pot of hippos there. So I sat on the bank for, it was nearly an hour, just sitting there, just trying to be at one with the environment because I was about to go out on this rock with crocodiles and hippos at dusk. Then I walked out onto the rock and I sat there for about another five minutes with my instrument quite still and I could see the hippos in the distance. And then I stood up and I played one note and I had transcribed the call of the hippos that the guides had been calling throughout the week that we were there because I thought if that's the sound that they use around the hippos then there has to be some reason for that and as I added a note at a time and extended it the hippos actually came down wow I continued playing adding just a note at a time and this one hippo came up and was just watching me and he was probably 20 to 30 meters away from me and as I play a note and leave space he starts snorting <laughs> and I and I literally jumped in my skin and then I'd play a note and he would respond and I'd play a little phrase and he would respond and this went on for quite a while and I turned around and responded to some of the birds that were there as dusk was drawing closer and then he snorts to get my attention <laughs> and you can actually hear in the recording that the audience goes <gasps> the gasp from them it was like he wants you back to talk to him and so I turned around and we we again did a call and response type moment and then I felt no the time has finished it's it's enough and then he just watched me and <laughs> I hope you watched him as well I did <laughs> okay, because good. I was thinking I really need to get off this rock before I'm eaten either by a hippo or crocodile, or crocodile. <laughs> but I couldn't leave him while he was staring at me so I just kneeled down and sat waited for him to to look yeah. away he did that and I got off the rock very quickly <laughs> and luckily there was cameras because as the applause came up and I walked off the rock there's this other hippo came up and he was much closer wow and he was there the whole time well I I'm I'm very glad that you didn't push it <laughs> <laughs> thank you but it sounds like an incredible experience so how have your um, these experiences um, and what you've learnt on the continent of Africa, how are they informing what you're doing in an Australian environment? Well, it's probably given me more of a drive. One of the things I kept thinking about was how wonderful we have such a vast range of ecology here in Australia. I really decided to start looking in my own backyard of what I can do and how I can get those sounds, uh, how I can work more with the scientists to get their outcomes in the public eye and to create compositions using our sounds. Now, if our listeners want to hear more and hear some of those um, incredible sounds, 
Is there a way they can they can do that, Vicky? So I do have a website. Great. It's uh, com. Yep. Is and that um, that's uh, two L's, two T's. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and there is also a link through there for recordings and that will take you to a Bandcamp site and you can download any sounds. Well, Vicky, thank you so much for coming in today, um, sharing your passion and your work, your compositions um, and your music. And yeah, if you want to hear Vicky's compositions, head to vickihallett.bandcamp.com um, and you can, you can find all of her work there. Thanks, Vicky. Thanks, Claire. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. science!